Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. All right, if you guys could stand, and I'm going to read our passage um, for the day. This is Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it's written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence things that do not exist. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. When I became a Christian, which was in the 80s, um, there was a phrase that, that I felt like we used all the time about having a personal relationship with Jesus. Do you remember the, does how, how many people kind of remember that phase where personal relationship with Jesus and maybe it seems to me like kind of locked in that time. Maybe it's still these days, but it just doesn't, feels like it was new then, um, like it was a brand new idea. And so maybe it's, maybe they were so effective then with it that it's taken for granted now, or maybe it was just a time where that phrasing was needed to reorient something that had gotten out of whack. Um, uh, but it seemed to be countering the idea that Christianity was just a dry religion, just a set of rules that you follow and growing up around a lot of Catholic, 50% of my friends were Catholic, and so they would talk about going to church and standing up and sitting down and saying the same things every week, and that's what it seemed like to them. There's just a dry, a dry thing. And so was Christianity about rules or relationship? That was the dichotomy that was drawn. And um, one of the ways this manifested in my life was that when I went to college, my dad gave me a bumper sticker that says, Jesus is my best friend. And I don't really remember anything about my college dorm room. I was thinking this morning, I remember one thing about college dorm room, is that we were on the end of our hall, and so we had a window. We were on the second floor and had a window, and then there was another hall here, and then the girls' dorms were over here, and the dining hall was here. So the girls all had to go through the little passageway between our dorms, and we were on the end on the second floor of the window, which was a prime spot. Okay, so I remember that about my dorm. And I remember my dad gave me this bumper sticker. It was a green bumper sticker with white lettering, said, Jesus is my best friend. And I remember thinking that just sounds kind of, I was Christian, like into it, but just sounded kind of weird to me. And maybe I wasn't as into it as, as, as other people. And I, I, and I thought about why that might have been. You know, people have accused me of not being the warmest, fuzziest person in the room. I think people have overblown that if I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, but like, so maybe that had something to do with it. Um, maybe I liked the rules, and so I didn't have as much of a problem with that whole rules relationship dichotomy. Um, it could be that I worried about what people would think, and it's not that I didn't, I wasn't vocal about my faith, because I was pretty vocal about my faith, but the phrasing of that, Jesus is my best friend, came across to me as a little bit weird, so I was curious about, like, concerned about how it would be perceived by the people around me. Um, it could be that friend seems like, like, like the wrong word, like a little light to describe Jesus. And Jesus is a friend of sinners, and he was a friend to those disciples 
Um, but, but not long after this, I think in the 90s, we went through a Jesus is my homeboy stage, and he is not your homeboy, okay? That was a, I just, maybe I was prophetic and seeing where that was going and just didn't like the whole friend thing. Um, or maybe the best friend part of it seemed disingenuous when Jesus can seem a little distant at times. Anybody else? And, um, and so my best friend, I want to be able to like call or text or snap them at all times of the day and like get in touch with them. And I can call or text or snap Jesus, I guess. You know what I mean, metaphorically. But, but sometimes it feels like he takes a while to get back. And so best friend seemed like um, a little bit much. But you know what I did with that bumper sticker? I put it up. And I did not really realize the irony until this week that I put, I put up a bumper sticker about my relationship with Jesus because it seemed like it would be against the rules not to display a bumper sticker about my relationship with Jesus. You get that? <laughs> it seemed like it would be against the rules to not put up a bumper sticker about my relationship with Jesus. And so in the rules versus relationship debate, the rules had co-opted my relationship because it was a rule that you had to think about your faith as a relationship. This is next level stuff here. Um, this is where... I think Paul is going in this passage, and much of Romans, but in this passage, is getting to this rules relationship dichotomy with this group of people. So, it, so we've been in chapter 3 for a while. He, he's laid out a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago now, just laid out so explicitly the gospel and justification and propitiation and or redemption and like that we have been made right with God and we are free in the gospel and what it's given to us. And then he starts talking about the implications and where is boasting and we don't have to compare ourselves and try and justify ourselves by how we do compared to everybody else because we have everything that we need in Jesus. And last week was the Jews versus the Gentiles. Is he a God of the Jews only or of the Gentiles too? And, and that Father Abraham was the father not just of the Jews, but everybody who believes. And his last question in chapter 3 that he answers in chapter 4 is with Abraham is this. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. And so he, he, this is like leaning into this. What do we do with the rules? Um, is it rules or relationship? And, it, and he's kind of introducing something new to them. And he's, he's talking to a lot of Jewish Christians who are used to their religion being about following the rules to a T. They had all sorts of Old Testament rules, right, about what you could eat and cleansing and sacrifices and who could, you could hang out with and all this stuff. How many of you have ever... Like started to read through the Bible, maybe because you thought it was a rule, and maybe because it was a relationship, but whatever. You started reading through the Bible, and you got to Leviticus, and like that was that. And then the next time, you got through Leviticus, and then you got to Numbers. And Numbers has some good stories in it, but then you got to Deuteronomy, and that's just it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just done. Because Deuteronomy means literally second law. It's like he gave it to you once, and that wasn't boring enough, so he gave it to you twice. That's how it feels when you read it. I promise you, if you get through there, and you get to Joshua, and Ju Joshua's tough. Judges is a fun book. Um, and so just push on through, and you, you get to some good stuff. But you get lost in that, and because it's all their laws. Um, in Jesus' time, you know, he, he got on the Pharisees about this stuff. And at one point he says, you guys tithe your mint, your dill, and your cumin, but neglect the weightier portions of the law like justice or mercy. They tithe from their garden, right? That'd be like someone bringing in some tomatoes this morning and trying to stuff them in. Or but it's your spice garden. And so they took 10% of that and brought it to the temple. But he's like, you guys just missed the boat with this thing. I um, have mentioned this before, but going to Israel 15 years ago, the thing that, one of the things that sticks with me the most is we got in the elevator, 
It's like the last night we were there, it was a Friday night, we got in the elevator, pressed the down button, and the elevator doors closed, and it went up a floor, and the doors opened, and we're like, and so we pressed the down button again, and the doors closed, and it went up a floor, and then the doors opened, and we're like, what is this? And someone said, it's a Sabbath elevator. Um, because on the Sabbath, and, and this is still in Israel, and most Israelis, from what I understand, they're atheists. They don't even believe in God. It's just a cultural thing they do now. You cannot press a button on the Sabbath, which is Friday night into Saturday. You can't press a button. How many of you think you grew up in a legalistic church? What did your legalism look like? Like, what was legalistic about it, in hindsight? Couldn't have a beat. To, that is pretty bad. You couldn't have a beat? Can you have music without beats? <laughs> you could press buttons, though, couldn't you? All right, stop complaining. <laughs> like, this is legalism. Um, these people knew how to do rules. And so Paul is starting the process of putting the rules in proper perspective. So when he says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith, law, faith, rules, relationship. For if it's the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. He's going to spend a lot of time talking about the law in a couple chapters, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this verse. Um, but he's just saying, like Abraham, and we t went through this a couple weeks ago, Abraham believed the promise that God made to him, and that was credited to him as righteousness. It was his faith. So Abraham was made right with God because he believed what God had promised, not because he followed the law. He, believed, he, he was made right with God because he believed, because of his faith, not because he followed the law. He didn't even have the law. Like it's 400 years before they get the law. Um, and if he had the law, he couldn't have followed the law anyway. But Paul's saying if it's about law, then what you believe doesn't matter. It's what you do. Um, law doesn't bring righteousness. Faith does. It's one or the other. Now, I'll inject this too because I think um, sometimes we like law more than we like faith because sometimes it's easier to follow a few rules than it is to follow Jesus. Uh, we might not think we want the rules, but sometimes we do. It can be easier to follow a job description than to follow a boss. That makes sense to anybody else? Like my last job, my job description was loosely related to what I did on a day-to-day -day basis. And so when I had my review at the end of the year, which wasn't with my boss, it was with somebody else, and we pulled out my job description, I'm like, man, I don't even know what to tell you because, like, that's not what I was told to do, you know? And that's just kind of the way that it is sometimes. But it's, it's easier sometimes if you just has a list of stuff and you do it, and it doesn't change, and you know what to expect. Um, in this case, the law, the job description, was meant to show you that you're not up for the job. And the job is glorifying God and, and holiness and we're made in the image of God to spread his image throughout the world and to each other. And we're, we can't do that. And so this is a little bit like coming out of college, maybe getting a job at Apple, but as a vice president, you know. And after like three days, everyone would know you're not cut out for this job. But you're like, I can do this job because, you know, you figured out how to make coffee in the break room. You know, like that's what the law was meant to do for us. Um, but, and so sometimes we'll just dwindle down the rules to something that we think can justify ourselves and forget about the rest of it. Because with the rules, they feel like if you do them, then God owes you and you're in control. But relationship 
is something totally different. Um, and it's not about who owes who in a relationship. I mean, if you've ever been in a relationship with somebody that thinks that you owe them, like that's not a great relationship, right? So Paul's starting to pull this stuff apart. And he says that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but the one who shares in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it's written, I made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist. So he says the promise rests on grace, and he's telling us something about the nature of the relationship with the one who makes the promise and those of us that have faith in the promise and that it's not an equal relationship, it's grace. He is showing grace to you through that promise. Um, he's God and you're you. And if anyone's going to exert control, it's going to be him, but he's choosing not to. Uh, and so it's not an equal relationship. I thought this is pretty, but like a, a bit like a parent-child relationship. Um, if you have kids, have your kids ever called you by your real name? It's like, my kids think Jeff is really funny. And so occasionally be like, hey, Jeff, how you doing, Jeff? And I don't really like that because I'm dad. I'm not Jeff to them. You know what I mean? And like, there's, there's not an equal relationship um, there. We had, a, he, Michael, this, is, this, was, um, this came up a few weeks ago, but when he was in, I think, fourth or fifth grade, he had a birthday party, had some kids over, and he had a kid, had, he had a great personality, just a big personality. His name was Colby Wells. And Colby, we, I don't know what they were doing or talking about, but they're at our kitchen table, and I'm in the kitchen doing something for them, probably. And, uh, and some came up, and Colby's like, chillax, dog. And he's talking to me. So I'm like, Colby, let's get this straight. I'm not your dog, and don't ever tell me to chillax again, you know? Like, it's just not, he's playing like an equal relationship, and it's not. We saw Colby, I didn't see him, Bobby Joe saw him, we were at a Broughton game, he was a Broughton student, which if you're from Raleigh, Broughton, it makes sense. If you're a Broughton student, I'm sorry, but you understand that better than I do. And, and she saw him, and it came up, like he totally remembers Chillax Dog uh, from that moment, right? It's a different relationship. Um, we, we went up to Roanoke Monday to pick up a load of Michael's stuff, because he's back from college for the summer, and we had lunch with his, uh, with his lady friend. And, and while we're there talking, he brings up something about the Prius, which is the car that he's been driving, our car that he's been driving. But he talks about it as his car. We're like, your car? He's like, yeah, my car. I was holding the registration sticker that we had just paid for, for that said Jeff Ramsey on it for his registration. You know what I mean? And so, like, he's getting at this. It, it's in order the promise may rest. The promise rests and grace. God is the one who is in control, showing his grace to us. And in the rest of that little passage, he talks about guaranteed to all of his offspring, which is leaning into last week, that God is not just a God of the Jews, but he's also a God of the Gentiles. And so he's leaning into this idea of relationship versus rules with God. And then he uses Abraham to say, this is what that looks like and what it, and I think what it feels like. So he says, this is Abraham in hope Abraham believed against hope that Abraham should become the father of many nations. As he'd been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was 100 years old when he had Isaac. He was 75 years old when he received the promise or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So he's using this as like an illustration um, to show us what this is like. 
So Abraham, we've reviewed this the last few weeks, but just real quick. uh, He's the father of the Jewish people. He's the first one. God comes to him when he's 75 and his wife is 65 and makes him an offer. He said, the Lord said to Abraham, this is Genesis 12, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You'll be so blessed that the other people around you can't help but be blessed. I'll bless those who bless you, him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And that is the promise of a Messiah. That is Jesus that he's talking about, that I need a vehicle through which I can bring the Messiah in and save the whole world, and I'm giving you the chance, Abraham. I'm choosing you. Now, in Romans, Paul is saying, like, this is what was going on with Abraham. In hope, he believed against hope. Like, as he's considering what God is telling him, and as he's walking with God, in hope, he believed against hope. That's a weird phrasing. Um, one person said, against all hope, he hoped. Uh, another, another pastor put it this way, it was against man's hope, in hope, which is of God. And that one made probably the most sense to me. It was against our hope and the way we think about hope, but in hope, which had to be of God. It made no sense, but he hoped anyway. And in the rules versus relationship thing, where we can use rules to get control, this was all relationship, because he didn't have any control over making this promise come true. It's like the exact opposite of control. I'm putting everything about my life in your control, God, even though it doesn't really make sense to me. And Paul is telling this church in Rome that, and I think he's telling us that this is what God wants. He doesn't want to give us a little to-do list. He wants a trust relationship where we surrender control of everything in our lives to him. So in hope, he hoped against, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he's been told, so shall your offspring be. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Do you, do you have presently, or have you had in the past, have you been in situations where you thought, there ain't no way this is going to turn out good? Um, and like you know God's with you because he says he's with you but he's not responding to your text or your snap or your call and so you're not really sure that he's what he's doing or that he's in the picture and you were leaning on God for something he either explicitly or implicitly promised and it really didn't look or feel like it was going to come through on it and in hope you were hoping you were believing against hope like, that's what this passage is about. And my prayer, and, and just but I trust that everybody's got a situation or situations present or past where this makes perfect sense. Um, now, you, you back up to the previous section. The last thing in the previous paragraph was in the presence of the God in whom he had believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. And it's, again, like he's giving us a window into Abraham and Sarah's mind of, like, do we do this? And this is what they considered about God, that he can make something out of nothing, and he can bring dead things back to life. And that just hasn't changed. Like, those are still the things that we consider when we think, do I I surrender control to the Lord and and engage relationship um, with the Lord? You know, they sent that telescope 
um, up a couple months ago that I think is the James Webb Telescope. And I don't know if you've seen stuff, it's fascinating stuff, but they are desperate to look as far as they can into the universe. I mean, until 150 years ago or something, they thought that the universe, that matter was eternal, that it didn't have a beginning. And then they, something about red light, infrared, something or other, where they figured out the universe was expanding, and they're like, well, where's it expanding from? And then they came up with the idea that it's the Big Bang, that it had to start with something. And as I understand this, you correct me, you correct me after, you correct me right now if you want to, but like it's, the whole universe was in some tiny little super dense piece of matter that just bang, like, and now it's expanding out from that. That's a theory, but it came from nothing. I don't know, maybe it did, like, that's crazy. It's hard, just crazy to comprehend, you know? Um, and so now they're looking at that stuff, but that's the whole idea is that it came from something. So if it came from something, what did it come from? And that's what the Bible says, God created it out of nothing because he's God, and we can, just can't fathom that that's the case. And so that's what Abraham's thinking through. Well, he can make something out of nothing, so I guess he can make this thing happen, and he can raise, he can bring dead things back to life. There's a great scene at the end of Acts where Paul is before Felix or Festus or both of them. I can't really remember, but he's making, he's given his testimony. He hasn't gone to Rome yet, and at one point in his recounting his story, he makes this statement. He says, why is the thought, it's like he gets exasperated with these guys. Like, why is it so hard to believe that God raises the dead? He is God. He can do anything he wants to. And that's where Paul's faith is. And that's what Abraham is mulling over. And, and, the, and Hebrews says, like later in the story, he has Isaac. And then when Isaac is, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, he takes Isaac on Mount Moriah because God says, I want you to give Isaac back to me and kill him. And it says in Hebrews, much later, that what was going on in Abraham's mind then was, if I kill him, God will bring him back from the dead, because God can do that. Like, this is where you got to live. He can make something out of nothing. He can bring dead stuff back to life. Um, it's not hard for him. And the problem is that, it, is that we can't do that. <laughs> and to trust in him and what he's called us to leaves us out of control and dependent on him and man that's relationship that's relationship with him um, so for Abraham he's made this promise and so I'm going to trust him completely leave my land like he was in Ur of the Chaldees and Haran and then go to some land that he's never seen before leave his people um, you know and do what he's asked me to do which honestly looks a little bit like following the rules which is complicated because you can follow the rules for a couple different reasons. You can follow the rules because you're trying to get control, or you can follow the rules because this is what he's told you to do, and you really trust him. Um, but this is, let me make a few statements. Like Christianity, this is what he's saying. It's not a dry religion about following rules. And some of you may be here this morning because you're following rules. When, when we lose relationship, because relationship with him is hard, then it kind of devolves into some rules that we can follow. And sometimes you just kind of put one foot in front of the other and it feels rulesy until you get back into the relationship. But you may be here because this is what you're supposed to do. You know, um, I remember listening to Tim Keller. This is probably 15, 20 years ago. And he said, um, he said, if when something goes bad in your life, the first thing you think of is I haven't been having my quiet times lately. He's like, you are a legalist. And, um, and that's just a test, you know. So it's not that. That's not what it's meant to be. It's a relationship with a God who wants to bless you. 
And not like health and wealth bless you, but bless you in a million different ways, in some ways that don't look like blessings but turn out to be blessings. It's a relationship with this God that made you because he wants relationship with you and loves you and wants to bless you. And the fundamental requirement for any relationship is trust. Like when you lose trust in a relationship, you know, what, what your mom said was true. Like trust takes a long time to build up and, and an instant to lose. And you can build it back up. It just makes relationship hard. And so this is the scariest thing I'll say today. God will do whatever it takes to get you to trust him completely. He will do whatever it takes to get you to trust him completely. Because trusting him completely is the ultimate blessing for you. And Abraham is, is one of the best pictures in the Bible for that. And all of us in some way are in Abraham's shoes where we sense God's called us into something that feels risky, risky because it involves surrendering control, involves doing things in a way that we wouldn't do them if it was just up to us and based on our judgment alone. But we sense, well, this is how God wants me to do them because it's something we read in the Bible or something someone preached or we listened to on a podcast or he, he just, we feel like he's saying to us, you know. And we have to work the same equation. This is God who can make something out of nothing. He can breathe new life into dead stuff. And, you know, if you followed him for a while, you've seen him breathe new life into dead stuff. Like, you've seen things turn around in a way that you never thought it would ever turn around. You've seen miracles happen. But it's funny, like, how quickly those things fade and you can't like rest on them and you need something new. And if you're in a community of faith, if you're in a church, you're supposed to remind each other of times that it happens so you don't forget. Um, and so this is against my hope, my rational, logical hope, which I really, really like my hope and what it's based on, in hope which is of God. I will trust him again and again and again and today and tomorrow and the day after that. And that's what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. And this is what Paul is trying to tell these guys and us. And then he makes this statement about Abraham and says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Now, if you know the story of Abraham, it sure looks like he wavered. Like, this, there's some semantics here, you know? Like, he was 75 and she was 65 when God made the promise to him. And they go to the land, but there's people in the land. And I would have envisioned that God was going to send me to a land with no people in it, you know? And in those days, there weren't as many people as there are now. And so I just wouldn't think it'd be that hard to find land with no people in it. Like we were driving to Roanoke the other day, and I love driving to Roanoke. It's like therapy. That part of Virginia is beautiful, and we were looking off into the hills. I was like, I want to live there because just, no offense, there's no people there. It just looks peaceful, you know, and um, you can come live with me. We'll start a little commune over there in southeastern, western, whatever it is. But that's what I think he was, and they had to get there and think, did we take a wrong turn? This can't be the land because there's people in this land, and some of these people don't want us here. Um, and that's what it feels like. And then there's a famine, and they had to leave that land, and they had to go to Egypt, or they were going to die. And the king of Egypt had eyes for Sarah, his wife, and so Abraham thought the guy might kill him. But the whole Egypt thing wasn't in the original promise. 
And so it probably felt like they're down there on his own, like God had screwed up and he'd forgot about the famine or didn't know about the famine or he changed his plan and didn't tell us. Ever feel like that? Come on. Uh, God didn't say you're going to go to a land and there's going to be some people there and they don't really like you. And then there's going to be a famine. You've got to go someplace else. He gave them like 10% of the plan and said, trust me with the rest of the plan. And then 10 years go by and there's no kid yet which has to feel like this cannot have been the plan. Like, we're not getting any younger, God, let's go. And so then he has the kid with his wife's maidservant, Hagar, and God's like, that wasn't the plan. And I would have been like, well, why didn't you tell me that? You know, but that's what it feels like. And then it says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. I think made him waver means he didn't give up. That's not just me thinking this. I've read commentaries this week. Like, Say this, Abraham screwed some things up, but he didn't give up. And that's good news for people like you and me. I think we face unbelief all the time. My favorite guy in the New Testament, other than Jesus, is probably the guy who brings his son to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you can heal my son, please do it. And Jesus is like, if you can, I'm Jesus. If you can believe, I can heal your son. And the guy says, I do believe, help my unbelief. Like, he's super honest. I do believe, but not really, but not all the time. Like, help my unbelief. And Jesus could have said, fix that unbelief, and then I'll hear your son. But instead, he heals his son. Like, he recognizes both. I think, I think we all face, like, forms of unbelief, it, it, but we can keep going in the midst of it. Like, the last line of this, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Like, I get that because I am fully convinced that God is able to do anything. Like, I don't know how to test that, but I really do believe. Like, God could bring people back from the dead. He can heal anything. My wife has thyroid cancer. My mom has life. He could like, boom. It's just he doesn't very often. And I trust him that he's got a plan in it, but like fully convinced. And in those moments is when we want to take control back. And it's when it's hard. I thought, um, I thought, and I think it's been a minute since I used this line, but there's a C.S. Lewis book, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And it's um, an allegory of a senior devil writing to a junior devil who's tempting a Christian. It's a great book if you've never read it. And the senior devil at one point writes this. He says, our cause as a devil is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks around upon a universe in which every trace of God seems to have vanished, asks why he's been forsaken, and still obeys. No unbelief made him waver. Through those experiences, it says he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So I don't know what it is for you, but it, this is a keep going. When, he's, when Jesus says, pick up your cross daily, I think this is what it means. Give us this day our daily bread. This is the day that the Lord has made like today, the next step right now. I put um, I put up podcast up in the weekly by a guy named Pete Scazzaro who wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and he pastored up in New Jersey for a long time I think I really like that guy and um and the podcast was about affliction and how God uses affliction to build leaders and it's really good and he mentioned Simone Weil who's a who was a, a French woman that died during World War II died young like super passionate thought wrote some really thoughtful things like an Christian activist and she, in an essay, she said, at the bottom of the heart of every human being, 
from earliest infancy until the tomb, there's something that goes on indomitably expecting in the teeth of all experience of crimes committed, suffered, and witnessed that good and not evil will be done to him. Like in the, in the teeth of all negative experiences we have, we believe that good and not evil will be done to us. It is this above all that is sacred in every human being. Um, and that is like, we hold these truths to be self-evident. It's the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jesus said that we might have, he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And like, we get that. We know that life is supposed to be unbelievable, just unbelievably awesome. And we believe that in spite of evidence that's clear that some really not awesome things are going to happen to every single human being and to every single human being it's going to end unless it ends suddenly it's going to end with decline and the absolutely unawesome thing of dying like but we against that and what she says it is this above all that is sacred in every human being and in ecclesiastes paul or solomon writes that god put eternity in our hearts um it's almost like that's the implicit promise that God has made to us and just how he's created us. It's a, but it's a question of how we make that happen. And this is, the Bible's so simple. This is the Garden of Eden, you know. It, do we do it or does God do it? Who's best capable of, of getting us to that thing that we know that we're made for? Um, I wondered... I wondered, I never wondered this before, if Abraham, when God comes to him with the promise, if he's 35 and Sarah's 25, does he still do it? Like, if he can think, you know what, we got a few years that we can still have kids, we can control this thing. Or does he have to be past childbearing age before he'll say, okay, God? Because that's what it feels like. Um, It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden. He wants us to trust more, him more than we trust ourselves because he's God. And so we do, but what we don't expect are the roadblocks, the afflictions, the delays, the setbacks. And so Abraham's story, in a way, is all of our stories. You know, in, in a, just the generalist sense, like we've been delivered, we've been promised deliverance from sin, but we're still sinning. We've been promised eternity with God, but it still feels distant. He says that they... He came that we might have life and have it abundantly, but it doesn't always feel so abundant. And I started thinking about afflictions this week and how if you could list your afflictions, and this is good exercise to go through, what you consider to be your afflictions, the implicit promise is on the other side of those. And so there are some health afflictions in our family and with me personally, but the implicit promise is like health or life that's revealed in the affliction or there's some finances they feel like afflictions, but the promise is provision. And we'll get there in Romans in just a few chapters. There, there'd be relationships that are afflicted right now and difficult, but it's not good for man to be alone. And, and the, you know, the promise is community. But it's just not happening the way that, that we know that it should. Um, and we walk around like this. I thought about this this week. It's fine, I'm fine, everything is fine. But everybody knows it's not, you know. Um, we think things are supposed to go well for us, like now. We're surprised when they don't. Get a little bit angry. 
And then we, what we tend to do is try and make them the way we want to make them. We try and take control back, whittle it down to rules, forget about relationship because we're not sure where God went. And that's Eve in the garden. She saw that the fruit was good for food, a delight to the eye, so she took it and ate it. Looks fine. Simone Weil goes on and talks about affliction in this way. She says, human thought is unable to acknowledge the reality of affliction which doesn't seem true, but I think at the depth she's talking about it, I, I can start to get it. To acknowledge the reality of affliction means saying to oneself, I may lose at any moment through the play of circumstances over which I have no control anything whatsoever that I possess, including those things that are so intimately mine that I consider them as being myself. Like it's just so hard to really come to grips with whatever that affliction or lack of control is. She says, to be aware of this in the depth of one's soul is to experience non-being. It's the state of extreme and total humiliation, which is also the condition for passing over into truth. <laughs> That's the reality that you live in. She says, in a way, it's the death of the soul. It's why the naked spectacle of affliction makes the soul shudder as the flesh shudders at the proximity of death. Trust is so hard for us because we fear the worst and delude ourselves into thinking we're the ones that can best control it. But that's where we grow the most. And, and like I said earlier, the scariest thing I said this morning is that God will do whatever it takes to get you to trust him completely. And that's where we live. And that's where Abraham lived. I mean, how many nights did they stay awake thinking, what if she doesn't have a baby? What do we do? What's going to happen to all these other people that are in this land? What if this king kills me? And as we were singing the first song, I thought, I wonder if Abraham and Sarah outside their tent had nights where they sang, you are good, good, oh, oh, <laughs> you're never going to let me down. You're never going to let me down if they sang the same thing. And God was Abraham's, you know, best ally and advocate. But when you read through that story, like God shows up in really dramatic ways, but the whole story goes over like 40 years and God shows up five times. So it's like every seven or eight years God shows up to reassure him because trust is built in the dark times and you don't really know if you can swim until someone throws you in the deep end of the pool. And that's where we all live. And God's highest goal is that we would trust him because when we trust him, then we glorify him. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. One, one commentator wrote, the life of faith is not the perfect life. It is the life which clings on to what God has said he will do and which sees struggles, joys, and failures as means of increasing our attachment to the God who makes and keeps his promises. This is what faith looks like, which is the moment we put our trust in God's promises credited to, credited to us as righteousness. Um, I'm going to ask the band to come back up. I'm going to ask you guys just to close your eyes and bow your heads and um, spend a minute with the Lord. I trust some things have come to your mind this morning that are just hard right now um, and that are struggles and where you can relate to Abraham and Sarah and 
I think part of the message of this is you're probably right where you're supposed to be, even if it totally feels like you're absolutely where you're not supposed to be. In the, in the podcast, which I'd really encourage you to listen to, um, Pete Scazzaro spends a bit of time talking about, how, about Jesus. And, um, you know, he cries out, why, God? I mean, and Jesus could have escaped affliction. He could have exerted control. He actually could have called down legions of angels, but he chose to trust. He hung naked on a cross. And um, I think it was Pete Scazzaro that made the point, like, that's how it feels when things are completely out of control. We might be exactly where we're supposed to be, but it feels like we're just exposed to everybody around us. Jesus had the chance to medicate on the cross when they brought him a sponge with wine, and he chose not to, but trusted that there was purpose in it, and God brought him back from the dead. So you're not alone because Jesus knows what you're going through. And um, and man, let's not be alone. You can be alone right here in this room every week, surrounded by people, but not willing to talk about what what this really is like in your life. And so all these things, a picnic or the if gathering, home groups, a men's breakfast, the men's and women's studies, like, those are about a lot of things, but as much as anything else, like, he didn't make us to walk through this alone, and so don't be alone. But lean on on what he's given us to get through this together, Lord. Father, we pray for, um, I pray for these, the places in our hearts and our lives where, I mean, they're just wounds, where we feel exposed, where there is some promise that implicitly or explicitly we feel like you made and and we're following you into it. But just in the moment, we're not sure, Lord. I pray that we would um, that your spirit would speak to us through your word and through the life of Christ, that you would reassure us that we are where we're supposed to be, that you know exactly what we need. Um, That you are for us, that there's another side to the things that we're going through. And we'll see, Lord. And I pray that you would use those things to help us to trust you more. God, thank you that you love us and and we have no doubt that you love us as, as much as in anything because of what you've done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name.